This is the seventh Sunday of Easter, and it's also called the Sunday after the Ascension. I was saying in the sacristy to uh, Father Cockrell that when I was in the absolute insufferable Anglo-Catholic days of my life off to seminary, I was absolutely shocked to hear that uh, someone had called Epiphany Church San Carlos in the Diocese of California and said, what time is your Ascension Day service? And the parish secretary said, we don't have the Ascension Day in the Episcopal Church. (laughs) I merely mention this to tell you that in the Episcopal Church, it's a very plural expression. We have the Ascension at St. Luke's. But I want to say say a little bit about the Ascension first, and I want to, as I've been doing for the last several weeks, preach on all of the readings uh, from the book of Acts, from the Revelation, and from John's Gospel, because they all have something to do now with uh, the forward focus, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And next week on Pentecost, we will celebrate the capstone of the great 50 days of Easter with the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, and um, this festival in the early church's life has connections to uh, the Judaism of the ancient Near East because it has harvest implications and lots of things. But it's about the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. Our patron, St. Luke, wrote a two-volume work the Gospel according to St. Luke, and the Book of Acts. And in those two books, he has a particular understanding of the progression of the Spirit as, first of all, in the Gospel, residing in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And in the Book of Acts, the transfer of the Holy Spirit from residing in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry to the church. So we become both the fiduciaries and the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And it is today that we read in these readings this coming, but also the benefits. Remember, uh, these writings are written after the fact. And so they're describing now how the early church is living uh, in the Spirit and how it understands what that means. Father Thomas Keating about the ascension says, Jesus ascended not into some geographical location, but into the heart of all creation. In particular, he has penetrated the very depth of our being, our separate self-sense, and has melted into his divine person And now we can act under the direct influence of his spirit. So that's sort of a a little paragraph about one of Keating's views, which is we are not God, but our true self is God. And so in the progress of the spiritual life, and remember when I say the spiritual life, I mean the whole of life, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love. That's what Thomas Merton said, the spiritual life is. So in my family, my grandmother would say, you know, dearie, I'm not in very good spirits today. I've said this to you before. Or I'm in very good spirits today. 
So I always get up in the morning and ask myself, what spirits am I in? Right? That's the spiritual life. Your mental, emotional, and spiritual states. So that's what Father Keating is talking about. That what occurred at the ascension was the divinization of our humanity. The Eastern Orthodox Church has a term that they use to refer to this process. It isn't used a lot in the West. It's called theosis. And theosis means that as we progress in the spiritual life, as we begin to mature as human beings in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, we become less unlike God. We become less unlike God. And so that affirms, of course, Thomas Keating's view that we are not God, but our true self is God. He says that our lives become a, a mysterious interpenetration of material experience, spiritual reality, and the divine presence. This opens to us to the transcendent potential in ourselves, to our mind, which opens up to unlimited truth, and to our will, which reaches out for unlimited love. You know, if you think about this in terms of um, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, you have to refer to some degree uh, to what Edwin Friedman, who I talk about all the time, speaks of, and that is that the recent study of the brain tells us that our thinking and our feeling are simultaneous. We have a liquid nervous system. So that means that thinking and feeling are simultaneous. So it isn't, it, it isn't uh, necessary to break it up into two different things. They're, they're occurring at once at the same time. So we have to make sense through the processes of, the, of reasoning to our emotional processes and how we understand what that means. So when you think about will and you think about mind, they're the same thing. And we have often spent a lot of time trying to separate the two. And so in the spiritual life, in the life of prayer, you can't divorce the thinking part with the feeling part. In the reading from the book of Acts, we have, I call this a day in the life of the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. Last week we had the conversion of Lydia, and this week we have Paul's confrontation with the slave girl, the Roman hostility towards Paul, and uh, the conversion of the jailer. But what I want to focus on is the slave girl, because we have something in this reading that is not unlike what we read about in Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, in fact, in all over the gospel, there is a... a uh, a theme that he continues to emphasize. And that is that when Jesus says and does all these things, the only people that recognize, or the only thing that re beings that recognize him are the unseen beings, the spirits or the demons. Everybody else, Jesus says and does all this, and they're... <coughs> they don't get it. They don't know who he is. But the spirits do. And they identify him in the gospel by his messianic titles. And we have an example of this today in the book of Acts. 
because the slave girl, who is being mercilessly exploited by her handlers, uh, is speaking and identifies precisely who Paul is and what he represents in spiritual terms. Let me say something about this uh, slave girl. There were lots of people like this in the ancient Near East. In the original text, it says in the Greek, she had a Pythian spirit, a python, you know, the snake. And in Greek, the Greek world, uh, the Pythian spirit was resided at the oracle at Delphi. And so, of course, the oracle at Delphi was the main place, one of them, when you went. Think about it. You run in there, and there's a sort of little sculpture there, and there's a mouth. And all of a sudden, you go in, and you want to know, and outside the mouth comes, buy low and sell high. It's like the New Yorker cartoon about 25 years ago where a guy's climbing in the Himalayas and he comes to the top and there's a holy man sitting there in the lotus position and the holy man says to him, do you think if I knew how high the Tao would go this year, I'd be sitting on this mountain? <laughs> so she identifies Paul because Paul is, possesses the spirit of God as we understand that as Christian people, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so she identifies him, and nobody else does or can. And, of course, they're a little nervous about the fact that she has this uh, far-seeing ability. So when we think about the spirit, um, maybe we should hope and pray that there are some people who would recognize the presence of the spirit in us. Right? What is it by the way we look? I've told you before, there is something again in the Eastern Church called the uncreated light, where you look at some people and it looks like their face shines. I think that's what the Bible means when it talks about Moses and his face shining and Jesus in other in places in the Gospels that people saw the uncreated light coming through every pore of his body. And I saw that once, have seen that once in my life when I met the founder of the Taizé community in France, Brother Roger, Roger Schultz. And I met him at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And when I did, I, his face, I, he was... It was the uncreated light was present there. And sometimes it doesn't have to be that dramatic. Sometimes we see in people the presence of the spirit or some species of transformation in their life. Some ability uh, to do what I'm going to describe as I have done every week when we move now to the reading from Revelation. The idea of something that has occurred but has also yet to occur in an even fuller sense. So that in our own life and in our own development, we have things that occur to us that um, are life-changing or transformative, but we still fully haven't lived into this or understood it or seen its capacity to heal and to transform both ourselves and other people. 
In the reading from Revelation, we, this is about the coming of the Spirit. And remember, I subscribe to the view uh, of, of the book of Revelation, the scholarly view. It's called Preterism, for those of you who want to amaze your friends. And that is the view that says, what is described in the book of Revelation has already happened. This book is not here to predict the future for people. We did not need Hal Lindsey in the great late late great planet Earth to unpack for us the book of Revelation or any of the other books to tell us about what it's predicting. The people who read it and understood understood what it meant and knew what the situation was, that what is described in the book of Revelation are the processes at work in the Roman imperial system and the victimization of Christian people who have now had to live under that tyrannical system and how they're going to learn how to cope and see the power of the Spirit in their lives in such a way as to be able to rise above it. But at the same time, they have also realized that this thing that has occurred is not a once-and-for-all deal, and it's going to continue to inform the way people in succeeding generations cope with the adversity and the difficulty in the world and how they understand their vocation, not to hope and wait to go somewhere else, but to do that here and to understand that God wants them for his purposes and needs each one of you to fulfill his purposes in big and small ways, in the family, in the workplace, and in the wider context of how we work as Christian people to transform society and to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. And that's what the writer in the book of Revelation is talking about. And he's talking about that in a specific time. I mentioned this last week. This book was written in uh, 70 or 80 A.D. And in 70 A.D., the Roman government came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and burnt down the temple. So what is being described here is something they already knew about. And they're living in the midst of this confusion and in the midst of this disillusionment, and in the midst of no idea about what to do next. And they believe that in some way the Spirit of God has now come to assist them in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen them and to show them the way. And so today, God is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It may surprise you to know that this is not unique to the book of Revelation. Plato referred to God as the Alpha and the Omega in the laws, you know, the dialogues that he had on various subjects. He referred to God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So when the author of the Revelation writes about this, they go, this resonates with our understanding with our thought world, with the way we see reality. And so it assists us in this now, not yet process. How would you think about that in your own life? Well, if you've had a transformative experience of any kind or a vocational moment or some moment of serenity where you begin to see your way forward, you know that that has had dramatic effect on you but you also know that you, don't get, you haven't got the full picture. So you have to do this with some intention to begin to see how may I see things with greater clarity.
and depth. And as we prepare for the coming of the Holy Spirit, this reading from Revelation says to us, God is the beginning and the end. When we begin to realize that, all our souls are restless until we find our rest in you, which St. Augustine said. So we're set up that way in the book of Revelation. In John's Gospel, we have a, a, a portion of what is known as the High Priestly Prayer. And this is one of those things I've told you when I first started uh, being a student of all this, I thought, I and you and you and me and we are one and you are one and I am one. I said, you know, I'm getting about 10% of this. This is a reading about Jesus saying, describing the absolute alignment of his understanding, his self-understanding, and God's self-understanding. I and the Father are one. The Johannine community who knew him and saw him, those who may have been eyewitnesses, saw that in this man's words and in this man's works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by virtue of that, we knew that we were not watching some tableau, but he gave us, in the course of this process, tools that we could use. Things to do. How do we learn to have unity of purpose? How do we understand bringing some sense of serenity and unity to the warring internal states? that we find ourselves uh, in all the time. You know, our own personal demons. The committee that lives rent-free in your head. How do we do that? And Jesus today in his departure uh, and his attempt at comforting those who are suffering deeply from separation anxiety, how do we understand what it means to possess the Spirit of God and to live a life congruent with God's purposes or in some unifying way. This text has also been read as a text that, that uh, encourages Christian people, rightly so, to seek unity, to seek unity and harmony in, in things, in all things. But we shouldn't worry uh, that Christian people are not... Uh, unified with one another about what all this means. Although we should on a regular basis labor to uh, move in that direction. But to understand that we, need, we find many ways in our common life together, both as individual faith communities, but also with one another in short little steps to be able to move together in a more unified fashion. You know, yeah, it's a scandal that Christian people aren't unified, you know, that there is a continuous uh, discontinuity between what people believe to be so and, and uh, what others believe to be so. And this high priestly prayer says we need to uh, work on the processes of unity, but also it's about our own circumstances personally and corporately within our own faith communities, you know. So in the Episcopal Church, it's important for us to work with one another to bring some sense of agreement. You know, there used to be a time 
when uh, in the Episcopal Church and in other faith communities, there were people that resided within them that held almost two mutually exclusive views of what Christianity was. Certainly that's true in our tradition. And now that seems that tension seems to be intolerable for some. And in fact, it's been, I think, part of the genius of the Anglican Communion that they have been able to do that for such a long time. And it's a sad thing to see that now it's uh, maybe in greater jeopardy than it's been in a long, long time. So when I read this text, I think about the processes of unity. Where do we agree? What do we understand to be true about God? And more to the point, how do we work on aligning our lives and purposes with the purposes of God for each of us? You know? God needs each one of you to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. It's absolutely necessary. So this week, give thanks for the, the ability to engage in that process and in that work. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And remember, next week, the Holy Spirit comes in our liturgical celebration, which affirms that now the Spirit has moved into our hearts in an inward way to transform and to make us faithful to God's purposes. Amen.